Uh, afternoon. LT is my name. I'm one of the pastors here at Church by the Bridge. It is great to be with you here on this Father's Day. And so I'll start by saying Happy Father's Day. I know Dan said it, but you know it's good to say it again. And I'm not sure about you, but it's always cause for me to reflect on what fatherhood is. So my girls, uh, we celebrate Father's Day on Saturday just because of kind of the line of work I'm in. It makes it easier just to have it more freed up. And they kind of rightly spoilt me, well, rightly from my point of view. But what is it to be a father? Isn't it being given the, the, the privilege of the responsibility uh, for other people's lives? Kind of plain and simple. Uh, the responsibility of, of nurturing, uh, caring for, providing for specific people you've been entrusted with, that is, children. And that's kind of the full gamut of their needs. Emotional, physical, spiritual. And so part of being a father, of course, if, if that's the ultimate purpose, is being attentive. Being attentive to the needs of those lives that you've been entrusted with, to nurture and care for. Being attentive so that you notice when there's a need or you notice there's something wrong. But more than that, isn't it? It's not just about noticing something might be wrong or there's a need to be met, but actually doing everything you can to meet that need or to help in any way you can. That's what it is to be a father. Some of us have experienced that in a, in a full and very rich way. Some of us, maybe many of us, haven't experienced that at all. There's something about the experience when someone in your life, whether it's a father or not, just someone else, is so attentive to you that they noticed there's something wrong and more than that, they get alongside you and are willing to do something to help. It's been wonderful in the last week or so. I've experienced that in the context of the people I work with, the staff team. Uh, we were away together last week and I wasn't having like the best of the weeks. There's a sort of understatement. But some of them were attentive enough and noticed and came alongside me and said, Are you Okay. And I'm sure if I let on, they would have done everything they could have to help me. What we have here in this part of God's word, the Bible, in Isaiah 52 and 53, is the reminder, or maybe it's fresh for you for the first time, that what we have in God is someone who's a father, who's attentive to our needs, the needs of his people. In fact, the needs of all humanity. And more than that, attentive to our greatest need of all, which we'll come to in a little while. And more than just being attentive, actually, he's intervened and done something that is for us, to help us, to meet that greatest need. So we've been going through Isaiah with the theme, trust the God who. And so today, plain and simple is, it's trust the God who saves. 
Trust the God who saves by his suffering servant dying for our sins. That's what we're going to see very plain this afternoon. We've been going through Isaiah and, and to this point all we've been discovering is the tragic news that God's people have failed. They're faithless. God gave them himself as their ruler and father, a place to live, a purpose to live for and all the richness of what it means to live in relationship with him and each other. But they've rejected his rule. They're misguided and they're not living for his purpose. They're not experiencing the joy and blessings of living in relationship with him and they've, they've been taken out of the land. And so the dilemma that's created because in that first part of Isaiah is, well, it's a big message of judgment because God's people have failed. But rays of hope shine in that section, don't they? Giving us a picture of the future. And so the dilemma is how is God going to get us there or how is God going to get his people there? Transform from the people that they are to the people that he hopes and he's working towards them being. And Isaiah 53 gives us the answer to that question and is so central to the whole of the book. And so what we've got to hear is a song of Isaiah. It's one of four songs about this figure or person that's known as the suffering servant. And so with any song, it's a song that is sung, if you like, that informs but it's also meant to move you. It's to move you in the form that it's written in or sung and by the very nature of the content of that song. And so my hope today is that as you, well, you might not hear it being sung, but as you read it and I explain it, the song of Isaiah, that the intent is that it will be moving, that it won't just inform you but transform you it will so move you so that if it's not your song Isaiah in this song here will become your song so let's jump in and have a look at what it says about the suffering servant I thought it's right to, to say at the beginning though as we jump into Isaiah 53 you can draw a direct line from what we're reading here to Jesus and you don't have to know much about Jesus to have heard that this is really about him. It's written hundreds of years before he comes, but he turns up, and it's quite clear if you know anything about his life, particularly his death, this guy, Isaiah, was actually writing and anticipating Jesus. And if you made that connection, it's a right connection. Uh, the gospel writers pick up Isaiah to use to explain who Jesus is. And so it's right if you're doing that yourself. So later on you could look up the events of Acts chapter 8 where some guy's reading part of Isaiah, one of the apostles comes along and discovers that and explains, you don't know who it's, do you know who it's about? And says it's about Jesus. In the gospel writing account of Mark, you heard uh, that there's a quote about Jesus being considered amongst the robbers, if you like. Well, that's a quote directly from Isaiah as well. It's quoted directly a number of times, but probably over 34 times, used to explain who Jesus is. So keep Jesus front and centre. That's the right thing to do as we're going through Isaiah 52 and 53. So firstly, who is the suffering servant? Who is the suffering servant? Well, firstly, we discovered he's 
exalted. 52 verse 13. See my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted up and greatly exalted. Well, the first thing it says is that he is a servant. Next, it says he will act wisely. And another way of writing that, if you like, or reading that, is that he'll be successful, that he'll prosper. So here's a servant that will succeed. And we'll discover what he'll succeed in in a little while. But notice also what it says about him being raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. If you've been following along in Isaiah, those phrases should be kind of lingering in your mind a bit, particularly from Isaiah 6. Because uh, they're phrases that have only been used of God himself. So it's a remarkable, isn't it, this statement about this suffering. Phrases used of God, now used of him. God's the Lord most high, high and lifted up. And amazingly, this one who's predicted to come will also be raised and lifted up, exalted, as if he's one who reigns and rules as well. Uh, 53 verse 12. So the way this song's written, the verses and the chapters and the way it's divided doesn't actually help us because it's shaped in a way, I guess like a pyramid, with a beginning and the end of the base and it rises up to the centre. And we'll see what the centre is in a little while. And so as you go to the end, it matches the beginning. Verse 12, therefore I'll give him the many as a portion and he'll receive the mighty as spoil because he submitted himself to death. So here's this exalted one. It's as though there's a, a victory being won and who's he's given as the spoils, the victory spoils. All the other rulers will be his. That's a significant person, isn't it? It's, it's a person of, of victory. That's his success. In fact, verse 10, we're told he's, he will prolong his days. There's an anticipation that this person will go on forever. So he's exalted. But surprisingly, the next thing we discover in 53 verse 2 is that he's, well, you could say unimpressive. He's unimpressive. 53 verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. Remarkable, isn't it? We, we go from this figure who's high, lifted up, exalted, great, successful, ruling to someone who's sort of unimpressive, and we discover in other verses, unattractive. He's despised. Uh, people turn from him. Now, in our minds, that doesn't add up. Uh, usually the people who are successful and exalted and esteemed and look, we look up to are in and of themselves very impressive, often attractive. That's how you are actually going to be successful. But as obviously that's not how it happens in God's plans, in God's kingdom. He turns everything upside down, including, including that reality. Uh, this week, 
I didn't know this, but I, I was talking to a friend and she's told me that she's a stylist. And I thought she actually meant, and so I asked her, do you mean like an interior designer where you make the inside of buildings and places look nice? And she said, no, no, I look, make people look nice. Uh, she has this business where corporations employ her to make, her, make their employees look attractive, look impressive by the way they, they uh, dress themselves. And it's all because... As we know, first impressions count, don't they? And so she coaches these corporations of, and how to make sure that their business gives the right impression about what they're on about by the way they are dressed. They want to be dressed for success. They want to impress. But that's not the case for this figure, this person, the person of God. But also we go on to discover in verse 3 of 53 that this is a person who's rejected. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering. He knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. We've gone from exalted to unimpressive, to rejected. There's absolutely nothing that's marketable about this person. But in God's plans, he's the one who will be exalted and rule and be successful. Well, let's turn to what did this suffering servant do? That's a bit about who he is, but what did he do? We've already seen that he's suffered this suffering servant suffered. And as we, as we read through that passage, you'd have to say that the verses, the sentences were dripping with suffering. It's, it's hard, there's hardly a verse where it doesn't talk about his suffering. 52 verse 3 we've already read, despised, rejected, suffered. And as you read it, you would have heard that it's not just a level of, at the level of physical suffering. There would have been mental suffering in his anguish and certainly spiritual suffering, being cut off. Even as we hear, heard the words of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 53 verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate. For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. Although he had done no violence, had not spoken deceitfully. So although he was innocent, no deceit, clearly perfect, he suffered. He suffered in every way and form that you could imagine. He not only suffered, he died. Verse 53.7 makes that clear. Like a lamb being led to the slaughter. That was him. And the end of verse 8. For he was 
cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He faced death. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man at his death. And verse 12, we're told that he was exalted because he submitted himself to death. What did this suffering servant do? He both suffered and he died. He died an innocent death, one that he did not deserve. And it begs the question, doesn't it? If this is someone who God esteems, even though he wasn't esteemed, if this is one who God sees and will make successful and one who is highly exalted and lifted up into the place of God, why did he suffer? Why did he die? If he was one who was innocent of everything, why did he suffer and die? And this is where we come to the central point of answering that question of Isaiah. How will the faithless people, the failed people of God, become the people of God that they are intended to be? It'll be through this action of this suffering servant, of suffering and dying. He died, and you would have picked it up in, verse, in chapter 53, for us. Very clear. As I said, this chapter is, or verse is a bit like a pyramid with the ends, both ends at the base, and then we move closer and closer as we get to the centre of the passage, to actually the centre of the message of the passage. And here it's actually verses 4 to 6. These verses are the centre of this passage, at the heart of who the suffering servant is, at the heart of the book of Isaiah and its message, at the heart of the message of the Bible, at the heart of what it means for God to be God. Verses 4 to 6. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. The centre verse of the central verses, verse 5, but he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, Punishment for our peace was laid on him. We are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Did you you hear it? The, The alternate between him and our him and our him and our him and us. It's about him and what he did and it's about you and I. And this is particularly written from the perspective of the believers who claim this for themselves. But what it makes very clear is he did this for us. That is the us being us who've believed in what he's done. There's a truth in this passage that's claimed right throughout the Bible. It's a truth about us as people. It's a truth about us as all of humanity and what we really like. And it's a truth that I think it's often hard to hear, if not always hard to hear. 
It's a truth that you might not like. But I'm going to say it even if you don't like it because it's true. Because the Bible says it's true. And that is Jesus died for us because we're sinners. Deeply and profoundly sinful. Do you see how it expresses it in verse 6? We're all like sheep who've gone astray. We've turned away from God and we've turned to our own way. As simple as that. That's what it means to be a sinner. Rejecting God's rightful rule over us as our creator. Turning away from that to turning to our way. To say, no, I'm not going to live God's way. I'm going to live my way and rule my life my way and everything else around when I can get away with it. And so the picture Isaiah gives us to help us understand that reality so we freshly experience it and feel it and we're convinced and we believe it so that our hearts feel the pain and the, the brokenness of that reality of who we are. He says we are like foolish wandering sheep and it is foolish it's foolish to wander from God who has your best interests at heart and so his suffering servant died to bring us back to give us peace it says so that we don't have to experience the punishment for ourselves verse 11 it says He will justify many. It says he will carry our iniquities, our rebellions against God. Verse 12, it says he bore the sins of many. He did that for us. That is why he died. And that's what brought about the change and the transformation in God's people. And it is what can bring about the change and the transformation in us. So this song of Isaiah that's out there or in there can become our song in here, knowing the peace that Jesus brought about for us in his death. A a while ago, someone explained uh, Jesus' death to me and death for me in this way. Uh, Just imagine this is me and God's up here somewhere. Now, you could just take this DVD and imagine this DVD is the DVD of my life. Now, the thing about DVDs is you don't just get the main feature, do you? You get all the extra bits. Uh, The things or the scenes that didn't quite make it into the movie uh, or interviews with the directors and producers and maybe the actors and actresses. All those kind of nitty-gritty bits. All the bits of my film that I actually wouldn't want you to to watch, to be honest. And unlike kind of Facebook or fake book, as you call it, which kind of paints an unreal picture of your life, everything's nice and rosy and fun, it's more like real book where you get all the other bits as well. That's sin. Sin sees all the deepest, darkest secrets in, in the crevices of my heart. And the Bible says that sin gets in the way of me and God. It's a barrier that I can do nothing about. 
And what we're seeing in Isaiah and explained right through the whole of the Bible is this is Jesus. He doesn't have one of these. He was innocent, no deceit, lived his life in perfect relationship and perfect obedience to the Father. And so what Isaiah is telling us is that the punishment for my sin was laid on him. Wow. So I have free access to the Father. No barriers. Nothing I've done. All that he's done for me. It's a bit like back in 2009 on that terrible day that we now know as Black Saturday when uh, the bushfires were raging through Victoria, ruining everything in their pathway. There was a story of one man who saw the roaring fires coming towards his home and towards him, and he thought, the only thing I can do is get in the car and drive as quickly as possible, hoping that he would outpace the fire. It became clear very quickly that he wasn't going to be able to do that. So he saw a field where the fire had already burnt. So he drove into that field, and because the fire had already burnt, that was very hot, and the tyres of the car exploded. He sat there in absolute heat, wondering what will happen. But of course, you know what happened. The fire didn't go anywhere near him because the fire doesn't burn again where it's already burnt. And so he's in a safe place. And so for us, that's the cross. That's the safe place. If we put our trust in Jesus, we'll be in the safe place so the fire won't burn again. God's punishment, God's judgment won't fall on us because it's fallen on Jesus. Has this song become your song? I remember the moment and the day where, maybe not in the words of Isaiah, but in my own words, I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, came to discover what it is for Jesus to die in my place. Great news, good news. It's amazing the difference two letters make. So every other religion, or maybe you yourself, as you think about approaching God, will think of it in terms of do. It's all about what you do. Two letters. It sums up all religion and often, even as Aussies, she'll be right, mate, how when we face God, look, I would have done a little bit enough, but it's what I've done. It's all about what you do. But reality is there's two extra letters that the message of the Bible placed there, isn't it? N-E, because it's about what Jesus has done. What he's done on the cross for us, finished. One of my favourite hymns is It Is Well With My Soul, and a favourite line within that hymn. So if you do come to my funeral and that song's sung, make sure it's sung. Sing this line with gusto, because it will be true. My sin, not in part, but the whole. Done. Done away with because of Jesus and his death for me. It's the hardest thing to say sorry, isn't it? I know I've been trying to practice it this week had a couple of occasions where I had to spend some time actually saying sorry for wrong things I do. And I thought, wow, just a reminder, that's hard. Do you know yourself to be the sheep that's wandered off, that you've turned away from God? Do you feel the pain 
is your heart broken because of your sin. So you know you need to turn to Jesus. Say sorry. Accept what he's done for you. Can you place your name in Isaiah 53 verse 6 and make it your song? If you haven't already done that, why don't you spend some moments quietly praying that as a prayer for yourself, putting your own name in that verse. Make Isaiah's song your song, celebrating the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us. Take a few quiet moments to do that now for yourself. Father, thank you that you are a God who's attentive to our needs. That you notice. Even more than that, Father, you know our greatest need and the need for forgiveness because of our sin. Father, thank you that you've done more than notice that your plan for all eternity was that you would provide a way for us to come back to you to be forgiven, to be at peace with you, to know you as our Father. And that way is Jesus, his suffering and death for us. Help Isaiah's song to be ours, that we'll know that it's true for us, and so we're at peace with you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.